Thank you, Marcus. And uh, thank you also for, to everyone here at Christendom College for the very kind invitation, uh, particularly President O'Donnell uh, and uh, my former doctoral student, Brendan McGuire, uh, who is a, a professor of history here. Um, this is the first time I've been to Christendom College, which is surprising because, I mean, it's the Crusaders, right? I mean, that's, that's, they even, they even have Pope Urban II and, and Louis IX out in front of the gym, so I'm a natural. Uh, but actually, St. Louis University, I think, uh, and uh, Christendom have some uh, connections. In fact, we sometimes say that Christendom College is a feeder school for our doctoral program in Crusade Studies. Uh, we've, accepted, we've accepted a lot of uh, Christendom students over the years, and uh, um, we've had great success with them. Uh, the students uh, that we accept are almost always uh, very well trained to do graduate work in history. It's a great pleasure and an honor for me to be here at Christendom College. It's an institution founded by the historian Warren Carroll to discuss uh, today this matter of the Catholic vision of history. It's a topic of great importance to me. As a medievalist, I am often immersed, I'm always immersed, in what Professor Carroll called the glory of Christendom, a time in which the West was defined by its Catholic faith. It is, of course, quite possible to understand and indeed illuminate the Middle Ages without the benefit of the faith. Indeed, most medieval historians today including truly brilliant scholars, are not Catholics. Does, however, a faith shared with those one studies allow an historian to more closely approach the human dynamics that lie at the core of medieval history? This is a topic that's rarely considered. In a controversial article in the Journal of the Medieval Academy of America, Rachel Fulton of the University of Chicago suggested that the secular training, and indeed the lives of modern historians, hid from them what was self-evident to medieval monks, clergy, and women religious. Without praying the psalmody every day for years on end, she asked, can any of us really understand illusions made in monastic and liturgical texts? One of my own research specialties is the history of the Crusades. This is an extraordinarily vibrant field now. Uh, particularly, this occurred, as you might imagine, since 9-11, when we were reminded that there are still many people in this world, unfortunately, willing to kill for the sake of religion. The Crusade Studies Forum at St. Louis University was founded more than a decade ago and has since provided a venue for nearly 100 crusade specialists and doctoral students to present the fruits of their research, and it's still going strong. It's perhaps appropriate at a school named for the crusading king of France, St. Louis, that we now have one of the largest programs in crusade studies in the world. Crusade studies is also a field in which I believe a Catholic vision of history has brought us closer, not only to understanding the crusading enterprise, but indeed every aspect of the Middle Ages. I'd like to explore today then, how that came to be and what its implications might be. It goes without saying that in Europe, during the Middle Ages, the Crusades were viewed almost exclusively through a Catholic lens. There was, of course, the odd heretic who found himself on the wrong end of a crusade, but few of them had the opportunity to memorialize their opinion on the matter. And in any case, willful heresy was extremely rare in medieval Europe. Indeed, I often think there are more historians studying medieval heresy today than there were actual heretics <laughs> in the Middle Ages. Jews, of course, often felt the deadly wrath of the misguided crusaders. Yet even they understood that the persecution they endured was a perversion of the crusade, not its purpose. For everyone else in the West, 
the Crusades were first and foremost a devotional activity, a pilgrimage in which the Crusader atoned for his sins by serving his fellow Christians and visiting the sites made holy by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Operationally, the Crusades were fundamentally an attempt to protect Christians and Christian holy sites from Muslim attacks and to turn back Muslim conquests of formerly Christian territories. They were, in other words, seen as defensive wars. Christians in the 11th century were not paranoid fanatics. Muslims really were gunning from them, for them. From the time of Muhammad, the Muslim state had expanded by the sword. Traditional Muslim thought divided the world into two spheres, the abode of Islam, Dar al-Islam, and the abode of war, Dar al-Harb. Christianity, and for that matter, any other non-Muslim religion, has no abode. Christians and Jews can be tolerated within a Muslim state under Muslim rule, but their states must be destroyed and they must be conquered. When Muhammad was waging war against Mecca in the seventh century, Christianity was the dominant religion of power and wealth. As the faith of the Roman Empire, it spanned the entire Mediterranean, including the Middle East, where it was born. The Christian world, therefore, was a prime target for the earliest caliphs, and it would remain so for Muslim leaders for the next thousand years. With enormous energy, the warriors of Islam struck out against the Christians shortly after Muhammad's death in 632. They were extremely successful. Palestine, Syria, Egypt, these were the most heavily Christian areas in the world quickly succumbed. By the 8th century, Muslim armies had conquered all of Christian North Africa and Spain. In the 11th century, the Seljuk Turks conquered Asia Minor, what is today modern Turkey, which had been Christian since the days of St. Paul. The old Christian Roman Empire, known to modern historians as the Byzantine Empire, was reduced to little more than Greece. In desperation, the emperor in Constantinople sent word to the Christians of Western Europe asking them to aid their brothers and sisters in the East. That is what gave birth to the Crusades. They were a response to more than four centuries of conquests in which Muslim armies had already captured two-thirds of the old Christian world. At some point, Christianity as a faith and as a culture either defended itself or was subsumed by Islam. The Crusades were that defense. As a war in defense of Christendom, medieval people naturally viewed Crusaders with great favor, even awe. Crusading was extremely expensive and the tangible returns were almost non-existent. Many warriors impoverished themselves and their families in order to crusade. You will often hear today people speak of the great booty that was obtained in the crusades. And in fact, there was, crusades were notoriously bad for booty. They were well known for not having much booty. And whatever people tended to get, they always spent along the way. Like the Good Samaritan, the Crusaders saw themselves as aiding Eastern Christians whom they had ne never met, but who had been sorely harmed by the Muslim invasions. As Pope Innocent III wrote, these are the words of the Pope, how does a man love, according to divine precept, his neighbor as himself, when knowing that his Christian brothers in faith and in name are held by the perfidious Muslims in strict confinement and weighed down by the yoke of heaviest servitude, he does not devote himself to the task of freeing them. Is it by chance that you do not know that many thousands of Christians are bound in slavery and imprisoned by the Muslims, tortured with innumerable torments?" End quote. Crusading, the Cambridge historian uh, Jonathan Riley Smith 
as rightly argued, was seen as, he put it, an act of love. In this case, the love of one's neighbor. The crusade was seen as an errand of mercy to right a terrible wrong. As the Pope wrote to the Knights Templar, quote, you carry out in deeds the words of the gospel, greater love than this hath no man that he lay down his life for his friends, end quote. Respect for crusading only intensified in the late Middle Ages as the Muslim threat continued to grow. By the 15th century, crusading had become a crucial component in the ethos of chivalry. This was at a time when Europe was racked by internal warfare and the might of the Ottoman Empire expanded to encompass the entire Middle East. As a result, Crusades were no longer wars waged in faraway lands for the benefit of others, Christians far away, but instead became desperate attempts to preserve Europe itself from Muslim invasion, attempts that, that failed. During these centuries, a Catholic, excuse me, the, uh, that's the Ottoman Empire, just so you can see how well it's doing uh, at this time. <laughs> During the centuries, a Catholic vision of the history of the Crusades obviously prevailed in Europe. This was hardly out of place since it was Catholics who conceived of crusading and who were its sole practitioners. Competing perspectives from outside Europe were exceedingly rare. Greek Byzantines had a low regard for Catholics in any case, who they considered to be, in general, ill-educated, money-grubbing, violent, and boorish. In most cases, Byzantines did not bother to learn much about the Crusades themselves, and generally would describe them as armies associated with various Western powers. Muslims in the Near East, for their part, had no understanding or interest in the Crusades. Those few Muslims who wrote about the frange, as they called uh, the Western Europeans, usually lumped them, lumped them together with other mercenaries who were employed by the Byzantine Empire. It's surprising that there was so little interest among Muslims during the Middle Ages of the Western Europeans who came uh, to their lands and established a kingdom there for nearly two centuries. Alternate Western perspectives on the nature and the history of the Crusades did not arise until non-Catholics in the West, in other words, Protestants, began to take up the quill and parchment. Indeed, it was only in the 16th century when Western Europe was in the gravest danger of Muslim conquest that the Crusades as an institution began to collapse utterly. There were many reasons for this. As secular authority in Europe increased, religious unity crumbled, as we just heard this morning uh, from Professor Gregory. Europeans began dividing themselves along political lines. In addition, there was a strong desire in the West for church reform. Reformers often criticized doctrines central to crusading, in particular, the secular authority of the pope and the doctrine of indulgence. With the spread of the Protestant Reformation, crusading was naturally viewed along confessional lines. And so, who we heard uh, about this morning as well, Martin Luther, these Protestants, as they wrote histories, or as they wrote about even current events, attacked the Crusades as a tool of a corrupt papacy. Indeed, Luther went a good deal further. He wrote that, quote, to fight against the Turks is to oppose the judgment God visits upon our iniquities through them. In other words, the Turks were the scourge of God, and one should not fight against them, one should instead reform the church at home. And so as a result, in Luther's view, crusades against the Ottomans were wars against God. Not only were they ineffectual, he contended, but they also served to help 
the evil institution of the Catholic Church. In 1521, for example, he wrote, quote, how shamefully the Pope has this long time baited us with the war against the Turks, gotten our money, destroyed so many Christians, and made so much mischief. When will we, when will we learn that the Pope is the devil's most dangerous cat's paw? End quote. Well, in 1529, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman army led by Suleiman the Magnificent, came before the walls of Vienna. And that meant that the Turkish threat became now much more dire to the Germans. This prompted Luther to change his mind. <laughs> In several letters, he urged Christian princes to set aside their quarrels and take up their swords against the Muslims. He envisioned a great army of Catholics and Protestant troops marching to the east, called not by papal encyclical, but by Luther's own pamphlets and letters. Still, what Luther was preaching was a secular war, not a religious one, and it was by no means a crusade. As he wrote, quote, in my turn, if I were a soldier and saw in the battlefield a priest's banner or cross, even if it were the very crucifix, I should want to run away as though the devil were chasing me. As the greatest source of disunity in Europe, Luther's calls for unity went nowhere. By the 17th century, the expansion of the Ottoman Empire had stalled. Although still powerful, the Turks no longer represented so dire a threat. This allowed Europeans, for the first time, to take a step back and to view the Crusades more as an historical phenomenon than an ongoing campaign. Nevertheless, viewpoints on the Crusades still came down along confessional lines. For example, the English, uh, Englishman Thomas Fuller, in his very popular book, History of the Holy War, published in 1639, accepted that the Turks were the enemies of Christendom, but he questioned the wisdom of the medieval Crusades, which in his view had spent European lives and wealth for nothing more than a faraway plot of land and a few relics. Conversely, in his own History of the Crusades, uh, published in 1675 by Louis Meinborg, a Jesuit priest, uh, he praised the movement and its participants. So Protestant authors wrote histories of the Crusades which, uh, 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 which were not favorable, and the Catholic authors responded. For a thousand years after the death of the prophet, the Islamic world, the Dar al-Islam, continued to wage jihad successfully against the Dal al-Harb, the abode of war. In that time, Muslims managed to conquer fully three quarters of the old Christian world, despite the efforts of generations of crusaders to halt or to turn back the advance. Only in Spain was the advance permanently turned back. An impartial observer at that time might well have concluded that Christendom was a doomed remnant of the ancient Roman Empire, destined to be supplanted by the more youthful and energetic religion and culture of Islam. Yet that observer would have been wrong. Within Europe, new ideas were brewing that would have dramatic and unprecedented repercussions, not just in the Mediterranean, but across the entire world. Born out of a unique blend of faith, reason, individualism, and entrepreneurialism, those ideas produced a rapid increase in scientific experimentation with immediately practical applications. These included such world-changing devices as the printing press, gunpowder weaponry, and ocean-going vessels. By the 17th century, European wealth and power was growing exponentially. Europeans were entering a new and a truly unprecedented age. It is, I think, one of the most remarkable events in history that the Christian West 
an internally divided region, seemingly on the brink of conquest by a powerful Islamic empire, suddenly bursts forth with amazing new energy, neutralizing its enemies and expanding across the globe as no other civilization had ever done before. Amazingly, the specter of advancing Muslim armies, which for centuries had posed such a danger, no longer constituted a serious threat. Indeed, as the gaze of Europeans spanned new global horizons, they soon forgot that such a threat had existed at all. The Muslim world was no longer viewed as a dread enemy, but just simply one more backwards world culture. From that perspective, the medieval crusades began to seem distant and unnecessary, a discarded artifact from the childhood of a civilization. With the danger past, many Europeans promptly belittled it, casting doubt on its former gravity. The 18th century saw the rise of the Enlightenment with its strict emphasis on rational thought, religious toleration, and anti-clericalism. As you might imagine, in an intellectual atmosphere like that, the medieval crusades were just not going to fare very well. Enlightenment historians like Voltaire and Edward Gibbon viewed the Middle Ages as a fetid pool of ignorance, superstition, and fanaticism that stood between them and the glories of antiquity. Not surprisingly, the Crusades were described by these historians as bizarre manifestations of medieval barbarism in which thousands of the deceived and the foolish marched through rivers of blood in a pitiful attempt to save their souls. In his famous Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, published between 1776 and 1788, Gibbon insisted that nothing good at all came from the Crusades, except perhaps Europe's exposure to more sophisticated Eastern cultures. Friedrich Schiller, best known for his play uh, Don Carlos, suggested in 1791, in his 1791 history of the Middle Ages, that the Crusades might be better understood as a continuation of the barbarian invasions that destroyed ancient Rome. Only this time, the barbarians left from Europe and invaded the sophisticated and peaceful Muslim Middle East. <laughs> the romantics of the early 19th century in part rehabilitated the Middle Ages, extolling the beauty of Gothic architecture, admiring the virtue of medieval chivalry, and eulogizing the faithful piety of medieval religion, although not really Catholicism. These two strands of admiration and ridicule were woven together in Sir Walter Scott's novel, The Talisman, which was published in 1825. This work helped to fashion an image of the Crusades in the modern mind that, while fictional, continues to be influential today. Set during the time of the Third Crusade, the Muslim ruler Saladin figures prominently in the novel. Scott drew on a long tradition in Europe that held Saladin up as a chivalric warrior of courtesy, mercy, and honor. In the talisman, the Sultan was transformed even further into a man of great wisdom and toleration. He stands in direct opposition then to Richard the Lionheart, who Scott portrayed as a wild, brutish thug led by boundless passion and misguided zeal. In general, Scott described Muslims as peaceful and sophisticated, while the Crusaders were invariably barbaric and ignorant. Scott's novel was not much read in 19th century France, where a new vision of the Crusades was being forged. In the wake of the French Revolution, virulent nationalism spread across the population of France, in many places displacing Catholicism altogether. French nationalists saw their country as both the cultural epicenter and the natural leader of Europe. They proudly looked back on the medieval crusades, born and nurtured in medieval France, as a clear example of their own country's greatness. When the French invaded and conquered Algeria in 1830, 
the campaign was widely described as the successor to St. Louis IX's crusade to Tunisia in 1270. Rather than efforts to turn back Muslim conquests, however, the Crusades were refashioned to become France's first attempt to bring the fruits of Western civilization to the Muslim world. When Napoleon III sent French forces to Southeast Asia and the Middle East, he surrounded these campaigns in the rhetorics of crusade. By the mid-19th century, the Crusades had not only become a rallying point for nationalism, but also had become an emblem of European colonialism. As such, they were not just the private domain of France. All the European colonial powers could boast famous crusaders in their histories. Germany had Frederick Barbarossa, England had Richard the Lionheart, even tiny Belgium had Godfrey de Bouillon. All made liberal use of these heroic figures as precursors of modern imperialism. The aftermath of World War I brought about the demise of the Ottoman Empire, the last great Muslim state. In dividing up the remains, the League of Nations gave control of Palestine and Syria to Britain and France, respectively. At this time, steeped in all of this imagined medieval precedence, these Europeans could scarcely have avoided seeing all of this as the final chapter in the long history of the Crusades. The popular London magazine, Punch, in fact, ran a drawing of Richard the Lionheart watching the British entry into Jerusalem with the caption, at last my dream come true. After taking command in Syria, the French general Henri Gouraud remarked, quote, behold Saladin, we have returned. The romantic image of the chivalric crusader marching off to fight a foreign nemesis was also pressed into service by the wars of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This was particularly true in wealthy and powerful Victorian England, where the idea of fighting in faraway lands for ostensibly noble goals was a familiar one. The medieval crusades figured prominently in the propaganda of World War I, when they were described by English preachers and politicians as a holy enterprise blessed by God. Even after the horrible and unprecedented carnage of the Great War, Europeans and Americans continued to characterize it as a noble crusade and the dead as fallen martyrs. Histories of the Crusades, the medieval Crusades, therefore, continued to be popular, and the Crusades themselves tended to be seen as heroic struggles fought by noble men. However, the use of crusade imagery and propaganda for modern wars began to separate in the modern mind religion from crusading. The word crusade came to denote a grand and glorious campaign for a morally just goal, yet one that was secular rather than religious. The usage is still common. One often hears, for example, of various crusades for things like adult literacy, a cure for dread diseases, helping the homeless, etc. These, unlike the medieval crusades, are generally thought to be praiseworthy. You may recall that a few days after the attacks of September 11, 2001, uh, President Bush used the word crusade to refer to the new war on terrorism, or as the press uh, called it, the C word. He was universally criticized for using a word that suggested a war on Islam. Now, leaving aside the fact that the Crusades were not wars on Islam, the president was in reality simply using the term in its long-established secular context. Interestingly, though, a nexus search reveals that although the word crusade was rarely used in newspapers and other media to denote the medieval wars before the president used the term, in the two months afterward, the word was used exclusively in that way. In other words, the President of the United States actually changed the English language for about two months. 
the secular use of the term was banished from the vocabulary of the various media. When any time anyone looked up the word crusade, it meant the medieval wars. I was interested in this because as a crusade historian, I would periodically do nexus searches on the word crusade uh, uh, just to find out if anyone was, was talking about them. And before 9-11, it was almost impossible to get through the forest of words uh, that had nothing to do with the medieval campaigns. But for those few months, it only had to do with the medieval campaigns. After three months, though, uh, it began to creep back in. By September 2002, the word crusade had once again returned as a word meaning a modern effort of great moral weight. Well, returning to the early 20th century, uh, the Russian Revolution boosted Marxism to the world stage, inviting more intellectuals to reconsider the Crusades from that theoretical perspective. For Marxist economic factors drove history. Marxist historians accepted that the Crusades were imperialistic, but they rejected the idea that they were motivated by idealism. Instead, they argued that the Crusades were the result of the growth in medieval European population and a shortage of available resources. The Crusaders were simply surplus labor, seeking new territories for themselves abroad. These ideas meshed well with the increasingly discredited nature of imperialism. Historians who were not themselves necessarily Marxist nevertheless accepted the premise that the Crusades were the child of avarice and greed because as imperialistic enterprises, they were clearly exploitative. The Crusaders were thus shorn of any semblance of real religious motivations. After the Second World War, the question of Crusaders' motivations was again revisited. With the devastation left behind by Nazi Germany, Western scholars shared a popular aversion to wars of conquest and campaigns of fanatic ideology. In the wake of the Holocaust, racism was thoroughly condemned and quickly joined colonialism in the West's collection of discarded and discredited doctrines. Post-war scholars had acquired a large dose of disgust for leaders like Hitler and Mussolini, who covered their bloody wars of aggression in the mantle of glorious moral crusades. The result in crusade historiography was a general cynicism for the professed motives and purposes of medieval kings, popes, and crusaders. Rather than heroes, many historians began to see medieval crusaders as opportunistic conquerors who cloaked their true motives behind a thin veil of pious platitudes. The most influential proponent of this view was Sir Stephen Runciman. In his three-volume work, A History of the Crusades, published between 1951 and 1954, Runciman portrayed the Christian holy wars as morally repugnant. Downplaying religious piety, he stressed instead what he saw as the evil motives of rapacious crusaders. Runciman's history had the benefit of being beautifully written. The prose is sharp, evocative, and stimulating. It therefore quickly gained a wide readership outside of the academy, and it still sells quite well today. Um, I'm sorry to say, because people should buy my book instead. <laughs> it's no exaggeration to say, however, that Runciman almost single-handedly crafted the modern popular view of the Crusades. Runciman's verdict on the Crusades would remain the standard for popular books and other media. To give an example, in 1970, the medieval historian Jeffrey Baraclough could confidently write in the New York Review of Books that the Crusades were, quote, a manifestation of a new driving aggressive spirit which now became the mark of Western civilization. For their part, the Crusader states were, as he put it, radically unstable centers of colonial exploitation. He concluded that the modern understanding of the Crusades was the direct result of, quote, our experience of total war and the hazards of living in a thermonuclear age. War is always evil, if sometimes an inescapable evil. Holy war is the evil of evils, end quote. 
This thoroughly secular approach to an age that was imbued by the spiritual and devotional was the norm for medieval studies throughout most of the 20th century. It required historians, however, to ignore or to deconstruct most medieval written sources since they were overwhelmingly religious in nature. Since it was assumed that religion was a tool of oppression, religious sentiments were just clever justifications for imposing control over others. In other words, all historical sources lie, and it's the job of the modern historian to peel away the deception and reveal the raw power plays below. In Crusader studies, that began to change in the late 1970s with the publication of this small book, what was called What Were the Crusades by Jonathan Riley Smith, a Cambridge uh, University uh, very distinguished historian. In this book, and more than a dozen others, Riley Smith demonstrated that the usual explanations for the Crusades failed utterly when confronted with the available evidence and a dose of common sense. Crusades were not imperialistic enterprises, for, among other things, they formed no colonies and they had no mother country. Crusaders were not avaricious treasure hunters seeking new kingdoms, but sinful penitents who spent extraordinary amounts of money and resources to perform what they saw as acts of charity and love. Crusaders were not cast-off second sons and ne'er-do-wells seeking greener pastures in the Middle East, but rather were the first sons and powerful lords who wished to do their duty in the Holy Land and swiftly return home just as swiftly as they possibly could. Riley Smith used the phrase pious idealism to describe the motivations of medieval crusaders. And once he and other historians began looking for it, they found it everywhere they looked. Riley Smith's substantial published scholarship and the large number of new historians he trained at Cambridge single-handedly created a new renaissance in crusade studies. His innovative approach to medieval piety also began to challenge the way that historians viewed a host of other topics concerning the Middle Ages, including such things as the Inquisition, heresy, popular piety, and church-state struggles. Religious devotion began to be increasingly viewed by historians, Catholic and non-Catholic, as an active dynamic, even pushing aside some of the time-honored Marxist constructs. For a new generation of crusade scholars, it was simply impossible to explain why thousands of Europeans marched thousands of miles deep into enemy territory for no good strategic reason without referencing the powerful spiritual imperatives that led them there. Medieval holy war was not, therefore, a cynical evil of evils, but really and truly holy. It is interesting to note, I think, in this context uh, and in, in this, uh, the subject of the reason that we're here today, that Jonathan Riley Smith, who is now uh, retired, he's an emeritus professor at, at uh, Cambridge, is a convert to Catholicism. A member of the old wealthy brewing family of Tadcaster that produced the John Smith and Samuel Smith's beers, his decision to leave the Church of England was not popular among his family members. Did his newly Catholic outlook lead him to approach the Crusades as the devotional practices that they were? Perhaps in part. It's true that crusade studies flourished in, crusade, in, excuse me, flourished in Catholic France in the 19th century, yet those Catholic historians almost universally described the crusades as proto-colonialism. So there was nothing specific in that regard that would lead to the approach that Riley Smith came upon. Based on my own conversations with Professor Riley Smith, as well as some of his students, I believe that his, his conversion did open important new perspectives for him. It is not possible to convert to a new religion, particularly when there is a price to pay for that conversion, without thinking deeply about the spiritual. 
Riley Smith's experience prompted him to probe just what men will do for the sake of the faith. In his comprehensive study of thousands of Crusaders' charters published in his book, The First Crusaders, Riley Smith demonstrated that medieval Crusaders were deeply aware, deeply aware of their sinfulness and eager to atone for their sins. The crusade was a means by which these sinful warriors were able to use their skills for the benefit of Christ and his people rather than for their own damnation. Today, Riley Smith's work is the starting point for all professional historians of the Crusades. My work, uh, for example, uh, my current work, centers on the role of crusading piety in the development of the civic and cultural identity in medieval Venice. Uh, many of my doctoral students uh, are also working on the same rich vein of, of trying to understand uh, how it is that medieval piety uh, activated and motivated so many of the dynamics that we see uh, during the Middle Ages. Modern scholars, I should hasten to point out, are not, by and large, Catholic. Crusade studies flourishes, for example, in Israel. Indeed, I can think of very few Catholics among those scholars specializing in the Crusades today. But all of them, whatever their personal beliefs, now takes seriously, I, I think, a Catholic view of the spiritual and devotional aspects of crusading. To give one example, a friend of mine who is an atheist is a brilliant scholar of medieval Catholic liturgy related to the Crusades. She studies this heretofore neglected material because she understands very well that for medieval Catholics, it was the liturgy, the prayers of the church, which constituted the greatest weapon to defend the lands of Christ and Christendom. Well, it will no doubt have escaped, not have escaped many of you, that the findings of the last 50 years of historical scholarship that I've tried to encapsulate here have not quite made it into the common understanding of the Crusades. Documentaries on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, as well as the wonderful Hollywood movie, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, I will say, if you get Kingdom of Heaven, I'm on the bonus material, um, mostly saying that it's not right. <laughs> these, these continue to portray the Crusades as cynical ploys by the Catholic Church to increase its power and wealth, or as immoral wars of conquest aimed at stripping the peaceful and sophisticated Muslim world bare. There are also shelves of books by non-historians that give essentially the same view. To give one example, Karen Armstrong, uh, an ex-nun, for example, reissues her best-selling book, Holy War, Whenever Trouble is Brewing in the Middle East. These media portrayals provide a vision of the Crusades that, that professional historians know to be wrong. It is ironic indeed that serious historical research into the Crusades has greatly expanded what we now know about those medieval campaigns, yet very little of that information has made it into popular culture. There's just no market for it. If your image of Western civilization in general and Western involvement in the Middle East in particular relies on a depiction of the Crusades as an insane and bloody, bloodthirsty attack on a peaceful and sophisticated Muslim world, then you are just not going to like what professional historians have to say about them. You will be much happier with a 50-year-old book by Runciman or any of his modern followers. This is apparent in some of the media responses to new histories of the Crusades being written by real professional historians. To give a, a, one example, in a New Yorker review of two new books by historians Thomas Asbridge and Jonathan Phillips, both of whom were uh, doctoral students of Jonathan Riley Smith, Joan Aquacella, a, a dance reviewer, uh, <laughs> I don't know why she was reviewing books, but uh, in any case, uh, seemed rather surprised and more than a little put out by what she found coming from the academy. How, she asked, can two professional historians talk of piety, devotion, and selfless, selflessness 
as crusader motivations. Quote, does this mean that Asbridge and Phillips think the crusades were okay? She asked incredulously. Aquacella speaks approvingly of much older works by Runciman, of course, and John Julius Norwich, who was no historian. The entry of scholars into the field of popular crusade history, therefore, does not seem to be welcomed in all quarters. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that there is a genuine hostility to it. Less than a week after 9-11, I was booked to do an interview on NPR to talk about the Crusades. The other guest was Stephen Humphreys, the distinguished historian of medieval Islam at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Clearly, uh, NPR hoped to stage a scrap between the two historians of the two opposing sides. Instead, much to their dismay, they discovered that Humphreys and I agreed on almost every point. The, the NPR interviewer fully accepted a narrative in which the Crusades were the root cause of Islamic extremism. When two professional historians assured her that the Crusades were medieval devotional activities with no connection to modern colonialism, she did not like what she heard. I did a few more interviews for NPR in subsequent months, but after that they dropped me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I was replaced with popular authors with no historical training, but who did provide the, pop, the proper narrative. Since then, I have given hundreds of media interviews on the Crusades, and I'm no longer surprised by the incredulous responses I received to my description of the Crusades. This tenacious hold on a disproven approach is by no means an unimportant matter. Severely corrupted understandings of the history of the Crusades animate terrible events in our own day. For example, during the summer of 2011, Muammar Gaddafi repeatedly referred to NATO forces as crusaders invading the land of Islam and called for faithful Muslims to rise up against them. At about the same time, on July 23, 2011, Anders Bering Breivik entered a summer youth camp near Oslo, Norway, dressed as a police officer and began shooting. By the time he was finished, more than 80 people lay dead. Despite his modern uniform, Brevik claimed to be a member of the crusading order, the Knights Templar. According to his 1,500-page manifesto, entitled 2083, A European Declaration of Independence, the Knights had been refounded during a gathering in London in April 2002. He goes on, quote, the Knights Templar was refounded as a pan-European nationalist military order and a military criminal tribunal with two primary objectives. The order is to serve as an armed indigenous rights organization and as a crusader movement, anti-jihad movement, end quote. It's an extremely rambling manifesto, um, the large, largely because much of it, is, it's like a bad student essay. It's cut and pasted from various internet sources. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say I actually appear in it a few times. On October 13th, 2012, the leader of Al-Qaeda, Al-Zawahari, praised the attacks on the American consulate in Benghazi, Libya, that left four Americans dead. He call, called on all, quote, free and distinguished zealots for Islam to continue their opposition to American crusader Zionist aggression against Islam and Muslims, end quote. In 2006, the International Symposium on, uh, at the International Symposium on Crusade Studies, uh, in St. Louis, I asked Jonathan Riley Smith if he believed the gap between what historians know and what most people think about the Crusades would ever be closed. His response, I have given up hope. I can well understand his despair. Professor Riley Smith spent his career restoring an understanding of the Crusades as a religious and devotional activities that developed within a uniquely medieval and a Catholic context he changed the way professional historians approached the Crusades, but failed to move popular understanding of them at all. And he did try. 
1995, he took part in the multi-episode BBC documentary, The Crusades, which was hosted by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. After taping hours of interviews with Riley Smith, the BBC selectively sliced the historian's words and inserted them into the episodes so as to make it appear that he agreed with Jones, Runciman, and of course the BBC. Riley Smith was so upset that he swore off participating in any more television. It was simply hopeless, he believed, to pierce the deep prejudices among those who worked in the media. In the case of the Crusades, a Catholic vision of history has allowed historians of all faiths to better understand this important topic. It is up to us to continue to advance that clearer view of a people in our distant past, despite the reluctance of many to accept it. I think the rise in doctoral programs in crusade history in North America are one component in that. Slowly, I believe, the colonialist caricature of the Crusades will erode away in the face of vigorous scholarship that contradicts it. In fact, it may already be starting. This past week, I was in Istanbul, uh, where I took part in a new uh, five-part documentary on the Crusades, which is being produced by EWTN. The aim of the producers is to present not only a Catholic, but an accurate description of this important episode in the history of the Catholic Church. I was so pleased and surprised to hear that Jonathan Riley Smith has also agreed to be interviewed for the series. As Catholics, we are the heirs of an infinitely rich history, one that is immensely faith-building. If we ignore that history, then we leave it to others to define us. Today, many Catholics are ashamed of the Crusades because they unwittingly accept a narrative that is demonstrably false. A Catholic vision of Crusade history has enriched our understanding of the Crusades. The next step is to tell Catholics, indeed everyone, about it. Thank you.